0: Hey friends, it's Brandon Laws, your host. Today is July 14th and I hope you're doing well. The weather here in Oregon is starting to get pretty darn good and it's a, a nice silver lining to being kind of stuck at home. So hope everybody is experiencing a great summer so far and i um, really happy to keep tuning into the show. Today's episode is a fantastic one. I was so lucky to have Mike Robbins on the show. He is the author of We're All In This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance Trust and Belonging. Mike and I hit it off on this episode, and and partly because we share a love of sports, and so there's a lot of sports and team references in this. But even if you're not a sports fanatic like us, You're still going to get a lot from this this episode because it's really about team building performance and the culture of psychological safety and trust. And there's so much to unpack in this. It's one of the longer episodes I've done recently. But I was really, really proud of this particular episode. I think it was a great discussion. So can't wait to hear what you think about it. Let me know. Hit me up at at LinkedIn. Uh, direct message me that way or Instagram's a great place to, to reach out to me as well. Hope you're doing well. Take care. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Brandon, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. You have a new book out. We're All In This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust and Belonging. You've been an athlete for many, many years before you entered the business world. What did you learn about your days of playing sports about what makes a great team? Because I imagine you you move from one team to the next and it's all a little different and you have to adapt pretty fast. Yeah. What did you learn about teamwork?
1: Well, you know, I played baseball all growing up and got a chance to play in college at Stanford and then played professionally in the Kansas City Royals organization. In fact, my first stop in the minor leagues was in Spokane, Washington. Mm -hmm. I was playing in the Northwest League. So the first road trip we took was down to Eugene, Oregon. So I was right in your backyard. Yeah. But I ended up getting injured when I was in the minor leagues with Kansas City toward ligaments in my pitching elbow. And that was back in 1997. And then two years and three surgeries later, I was finally forced to retire from baseball, which. You know, it's been over 20 years now, but it was devastating, as you can imagine. But I basically played baseball, Brandon, from the age of seven until I got hurt at 23 and then finally retired at 25. And I learned a ton of things through that whole experience. I mean, even starting from like, I opened the book actually with a story from Little League when I was 11 years old, kind of my first realization that team chemistry, as we would call it in sports, I didn't even probably call it that at 11 years old, really mattered. And as I moved through my baseball career and, you know, got to high school and was a pretty good player and got to college and, you know, at Stanford, it was pretty intense level of competition. And then in the minor leagues, I was always fascinated by the dynamic of like talent obviously mattered. So if you had better players, you usually were in a better position to win. But I was on some teams sometimes where we had really good talent and the team didn't play very well, which was super disappointing and frustrating. And then I was on some other teams where, you know, we had decent talent, But we were like, fantastic. We would beat other teams that had better talent, better players. And that's when I started to get really curious about, huh, this team chemistry really matters. But I erroneously thought in those days that it had to do with sports. Yeah. I got my first job post-baseball. It was in the late 90s. I was working in sales for an internet company based in New York, but it was in the San Francisco office where I grew up and where I still live in the Bay Area. And I immediately noticed, oh, this whole business world thing is way different than sports in a lot of ways. But that whole team chemistry thing, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. We just call it culture and business. And I was like, oh, that still matters. Leadership matters. Relationships matter. Communication matters. Like how we feel about each other. Do we trust each other? Do we have each other's backs? Like how do we manage our egos? Like All of these sort of intangible things that I had noticed and been curious about as an athlete. I realized it's the same thing. It doesn't matter the type of team or the type of work. And so after just a couple years working in the dot-com world for a couple different internet companies in the late 90s, I started my consulting business 20 years ago, really with the curiosity from what I'd learned as an athlete and then what I was seeing, how it related to business. So much of even all these years later, almost two decades of doing this work and getting a chance to work with a lot of great teams and companies and writing books and researching like, it's just reinforced a lot of what I had learned in those early days playing baseball that like, you know, Peter Drucker said famously, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And he's right. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges with moving from team to team about having an effective team? Well, I mean, I think you have to invest in it. I think you have to commit to it. And the challenge is, whether we're talking sports or business or a family or any kind of group or community, it's like how much time and energy do we really focus on the health of the group and committing to that. And look, right now in the midst of this pandemic, I can even see this with my own team. We're focused on how do we pivot the business and how do we still generate revenue and how do we serve our clients and all these things. It's like, oh wait, hold on a second. Even someone who is out in the world working with teams and working with leaders and encouraging them and really passionately advocating for them that you have to focus on the health of your team. You have to really focus on this and commit to it and invest in it it's challenging to do, especially when things get hard. And so moving from team to team, what I would see both back when I was playing baseball and then when I got into the business world myself and now consulting with so many different teams and groups and companies of different sizes, the level of commitment, the level of priority that is placed on team health and team culture and team performance has a huge impact. And the challenges in the short term, it's like almost every offsite that I ever, find myself at, which of course in the last few months I'm not at any offsites because nobody's having them. But I'll often say to a team, and even now if we do it on Zoom or on Skype or, you know, WebEx or whatever, it's like, look, we never really have time to do a meeting like this. Take the team and go off for a couple of days, like, geez, a lot of money and time and we're away from the office and we gotta be, we're not producing results and all that stuff. But it's like if you don't do this, then it creates problems. It's kind of like a weird analogy that just popped into my head though. It's like date night in our relationships, right? if you don't make commitment to, and especially like you and I both have young kids, yours are a few years younger than mine, but if the babies show up and all of a sudden you're just managing the kids and the babies and all this stuff and you forget like, oh my God, yeah, I was in love with that person. That's why we got together and got married and wanted to have babies. And then now we're not nurturing our marriage and our love for each other, which is hard to do and not easy, especially when they're babies and toddlers and then they're you know, school-age kids like yours. And now I've got, you know, a teen and a preteen. And it's like, if the doingness of parenting is so intense that we forget to really invest not only in our marriage, but in the health of our family. And it can be hard in the same, although it's very different contexts and different dynamics, the same is true, I think, with work teams.
0: Yeah. And it's something that popped into my head as you're describing that. It's like the parallel between sports and in the business environment. You know, with business, I think so many people just want to like, do the nine-to-five thing punch the clock and not go deep on relationships whereas like you look at sports I mean i remember because i too played baseball up until what oh, did you college time yeah and, and i just remember the camaraderie like we'd go on road trips and then stay in hotels and you're spending time with your team and getting to know them at a really deep level so that way when you're on the field you can call somebody out if you need to because you're holding them accountable there's we're gonna dive into all the pillars but psychological safety is a real thing too. Like you have this safe environment where it's okay to to speak up if somebody's not doing the right thing. And that comes with spending time and getting to know one another.
1: Yeah. Well, and it kind of cuts both ways, if you will, at least when I think back to my experience playing sports. And then I think about teams now. I mean, on the one hand, if we're on a really strong team and we do have that sense of psychological safety and we do feel like we really trust each other and we can call each other out, that's incredibly empowering, nourishing, you know, most of us in our lives have had fantastic team experiences at one point or another. And most of us remember those fondly because they're really important. On the flip side, when we're on a team where that doesn't exist, maybe it's more benign and it's just kind of like, you know, we're all cordial and it's fine or even worse when it's kind of toxic, then it has the opposite impact. And it's an interesting needle to thread. When I even think back to sports and my experience as an athlete, it's like, Loving my teammates and really feeling close and connected, yet at the same time, the competition, yeah. the jealousy, the envy that would exist sometimes, the oh, the yeah. level of insecurity. Because especially in something like baseball, there's so much failure and it's so competitive. Even if the team is really strong, it's like, am I going to get to the next level? Do I get to play next year? Am I in the starting? I mean, all those normal human things. It's hard to just kind of relax into, oh, we this team. I've been watching. People may be listening to this one a few weeks after we're talking, but I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah, yeah. The Last Dance. It's so so good. I can't get enough of that. Well, you know what's interesting though? When you think about that team and the Bulls, right? And I've been fascinated. I mean, I love sports. I love basketball as much as baseball. I was a huge Michael Jordan fan in the 90s. and But thinking about that team, it's Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Phil Jackson, the coach, the three constants through that whole run of those two separate three-peats. That's really it. You know what I mean? And a basketball team only had 12 to 15 guys on it. But the guys that are on the team in that second run are different than the guys in the first run. And so again, just thinking about that, all the different interchangeable players that aren't the stars, if you will. So when we think about it, and I'm a big Golden State Warriors fan growing up here in the Bay Area. And it's like, really, the Warriors have their three core players, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and yeah. Draymond Green, that we're hoping... Clay's healthy again and they come back and that when we start playing basketball again, Steph's good and they have a little more of a run in this incredible run they've had over the last five or six years. But I say all of that because the truth of the matter is like in sports, I mean, unless you're Michael Jordan or Steph Curry, the version of that, even if you think about that in the business world, like people don't always feel really safe in their jobs. And like right now with what's happening in the world and the economy, almost everybody I'm talking to are on pins and needles. So again, it comes back to like the times we really need to lean on each other and support each other and come together as a team. Sometimes for a lot of understandable reasons, we're not doing that. We're focused on looking out for ourselves or trying to close the next deal or do the next thing or finish the next project instead of really going, wait a second, how do I invest in myself and my teammates? Uh,
0: probably a year or so ago, I interviewed Amy Edmondson. Mm. She coined the term psychological safety. I mean, She's got several books about it and does a yeah. lot of great research. And I think she's you got great. a chance to interview her too. I did. Her work is fantastic. And I think people are really starting to catch on to this term and, and really try to integrate it in their organization. Yes. You talk about the Golden State Warriors and how in the finals, yeah. they were... Not necessarily facing elimination, but they were definitely down and they yes. just could not match LeBron James and their scheme that they put together. It's somewhere it flipped. And I want you to talk about how the Golden State Warriors and their psychologically safe organization was able to turn things around and win the series. This is 2015, I believe.
1: Yeah, this was their first title back a few years ago. So Amy Edmondson, as you know, because you interviewed her, as did I, on on my own podcast, she's a professor at Harvard Business School. And I don't know that she sort of invented or, or coined the phrase psychological safety, but she's been sort of the world's leading expert in this field over the last 20 years and has done a ton of the foundational research. And basically, psychological safety is, I like to think of it as group trust. It means the group, we create an environment, a culture in which, People feel safe to bring up ideas and thoughts and dissent, if you will, knowing they're not going to get shamed, ridiculed, sort of kicked out of the group. It's okay to have a crazy idea that doesn't go anywhere or to try something and take a risk and fail. You know that the team is safe enough. So the example that I use in the book is, so the Warriors had this great year in 2015. Steve Kerr was the new coach, first year coach, and they had the best record in the NBA, which surprised everybody because they were a young team had gotten eliminated in the first round of the playoffs the year before, but they're in the NBA Finals against LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers, and they're down 2-1 in the series, and they look a bit overmatched. And even though the Cavs had a couple key injuries of two of their best players, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, it looked like LeBron had been there before four years in a row, had been to the finals with the Miami Heat, and it's like, well, the Warriors are just sort of deer in headlights, like they're not going to be able to win. And after Game 3 one of their young coaches, this guy named Nick Uren, was going over tape and really looking at everything. And he had an idea that the Warriors changed their starting lineup and go to their small lineup that they would use from time to time with Andre Iguodala, who's former All-Star, but had been coming off the bench for them all year. And Uren came to Steve Kerr, the head coach, and said, hey, what if we bench Andrew Bogut, who's our center, and start <laughs> our small lineup? Because we usually end the game with that lineup. But what if we start and we think it'll throw them off and They won't be able to defend us or keep up with us. And so they started Andre Iguodala in game four and went with that small lineup and they won. And then they won game five and then they won game six and won the championship. And Andre Iguodala ended up being named the MVP of NBA Finals and he didn't even start the first three games. And what Kerr did, which I thought was such a great move from a leadership standpoint, was he gave Nick Uren the credit and said, this is the guy that came up with this idea and challenged us to think differently And Kerr also said, openly and directly, if this had not worked, I would have taken responsibility for it. So basically, that's
0: leadership right there,
1: right? He wasn't going to throw the guy under the bus. But then when it worked, he gave him credit. I mean, that's like, in some cases, if we're really honest, the antithesis of a lot of ways that certain leaders will operate. And even sometimes ourselves, it's like, hey, I'm going to throw someone under the bus if they bring up a bad idea that doesn't work. And I'm going to take credit for the great idea because I'm the leader in that. You know what I mean? Again, not yep. that it would be that malicious, but I could see someone doing that and not even assume that they're a terrible person, but just that's sometimes the way that we default to of wanting credit. And so what I assume from that and everything I've read about the warriors and the the culture that they've created both the players and the coaching staff is one that's psychologically safe that even a young assistant coach with no experience at that level here's steve kerr who's won five nba titles as a player he played for phil jackson right he played for that bulls team in that second run he played for greg popovich and won two titles with the san antonio spurs even though he was a first-year coach the warriors just had the best record in the league that year and here's steve kerr who's got all this experience and all right even though relatively limited experience as a coach but you could easily see how he would say hey you know mind your own business or what are you crazy change the starting lineup in the nba finals like shut up you know But he took the idea, they went with it, it worked, and that Nick Uren felt safe enough to bring that up and that they have that kind of culture where they can do that. And the stakes in that situation, pretty high, pretty public. So again, using that as an example for everybody listening, do you think about your own teams? Think about yourself as a leader. Do we create the kind of environment where people around us feel safe enough to bring up ideas, whether we use them or not, but they know that they can. They have a voice at the table. That's what psychological safety is all about.
0: One thing that really comes through in this chapter, the section about psychological safety in your book is about bringing your whole self to work. And you talk about this authenticity continuum. Talk about that, what the, the ends of the spectrum.
1: Right, well, you know, the last book that I wrote, my fourth book is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And then this one, we're all in this together is almost kind of a continuation or sort of, it's weird to say it's a sequel because it's a leadership team book, but I kind of built off of a lot of, that in this book, and I've been talking about and studying branded authenticity for the last 10, 12 years. And so the authenticity continuum is like on one side of the continuum is phony. (laughs) On the other end of the continuum is authentic. And in the middle is honest. And oftentimes I think we're thinking about authenticity in this black and white sort of linear, I'm either being honest or how honest can I be? Well, I need to be honest, but like kind of politically correct, honest or honest in a way that doesn't have people get offended or You know, and we get in these cultural debates about how direct we can be or not. I live here in the San Francisco area. You live up in Portland. People are often arguing sort of East Coast versus West Coast of the U.S. The people on the East Coast get all annoyed with us on the West Coast for being passive aggressive or whatever it is. And my response is always like, look, that's not a relevant conversation. But what we're really talking about is how can we be more authentic with each other? And the way we can do that is it's not about watering down our honesty. It's about removing something from our honesty and adding something to it. And this is what I call the authenticity equation. It's honesty minus self-righteousness plus vulnerability. That gets us to authenticity. So removing the righteousness. I'm right, you're wrong. Not the passion, not the conviction. Not, it's not about not having strong opinions or even taking a position, but it's about not being fixed in that position because if I'm right and you disagree with me, that makes you wrong. And now we're at an impasse.
0: You talk about if you really knew me exercise and how this could yep. help with vulnerability. Yep. Talk about this exercise. I've done something like, I think we called it like a view from my boat or something like that, but it's <laughs> the same idea. Yeah. Talk about this. I think people could really take this back to their organizations and do
1: this. I mean, this is an exercise. I learned this from some mentors of mine many years ago, named Rich and Yvonne Dutra St. John, who started this great organization called Challenge Day, where they actually do their programs, their work in middle schools and high schools all over the country and around the world. And I sort of adapted this exercise from their program and have used it myself for 10, 15 years. And it basically is this I love doing this, especially with teams. Like I'm working with a leadership team, an intact team. I mean, I'm even doing this these days on Zoom and Skype. Ideally, we're together in person, but you can do it also with a much larger group. But basically, the way that it works is somebody starts, and if I'm facilitating, I start. And the metaphor that I use when we're talking about authenticity, particularly vulnerability, is the iceberg metaphor. And it's like, hey, If we're going to be more real with each other, if we're going to build more trust, if we're going to connect more deeply as human beings, we got to lower the waterline on the iceberg. So the way the exercise goes is once I've sort of set it up and talked a little bit about what it is and tried to make it as safe as possible, I'll say, we're going to do an exercise here. We're going to have a conversation. And if it's just an intact team, I'll go first and then we'll go around the table. If it's a larger group, I might break people up into smaller groups of three or four. And if it's a really big group, like I'm giving a speech at a big event, I'll sometimes pair people up. But basically, I say, here's what we're going to do. You're just going to repeat this phrase. Everyone's going to have a turn for about a minute or two. And you're just going to say, if you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And there's no right or wrong way. You don't have to say anything you don't want to say, but I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to challenge you to when it's your turn, really lower the waterline on your iceberg and let us know if we really knew you in this moment, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? What's happening for you? No one's going to judge you. No one's going to criticize you. No one's going to give you any feedback or coaching or comment or you know, laugh unless you. If you say something really funny, we might inadvertently laugh. We're not laughing at you. And I also make sure that everyone agrees whatever anybody says in this conversation, whether it's paired up or in a small group, or if we're doing it around the whole table or on the Zoom. It, it, we're going to keep it confidential. And what's amazing about it is, and my job in facilitating it is to really go there and show up and be real in the moment. Like I don't have a little script of here's what I'm going to say when we do it. It's like take a breath and just tap into what's real and true for me in that moment. And then I'll usually go next to the leader of the team. And then from there, we'll go around the table after he or she shares. And what's amazing about this, Brandon, is I've seen this and done this exercise so many different times with so many different groups and teams. And look, admittedly, sometimes it goes a little bit deeper than others. But in general, people really open up and share about what's going on. And what's amazing about this is that the more personal, and again, some people are more private than others, but here's what one of the paradoxes I found about this. Often the more personal, the more universal. The more you tell me how you're really feeling, what's really going on for you, I'll be able to relate. Not relate like necessarily, oh, I have that too, whatever the thing is, or I'm dealing with that. Or you know, you could be telling me about your dog and I don't have a dog. Or you could be telling me about something going on in your family and that's not going on in my family and maybe never has. But we can always relate to the human emotional experience of it. The thing is, like, it's even if you're opening up
0: and you can't necessarily relate, there's a way to empathize a little bit because you're feeling the same emotions. Totally. And we did this years ago, like a 45 person group, and we just got in a big circle, and it just Mm -hmm. it was amazing how it just organically. I mean, it's heavy. It's it's really heavy. It got emotional. People were crying. People had to leave the room in some cases and come back. And finish up. But if there's one thing you, to take away from this, it's to do that. It's a way to build vulnerability in the organization for sure.
1: Absolutely. Look, and even in a simpler way, and simpler meaning it doesn't have to necessarily get so heavy. And maybe we don't have time to spend, you know, however much time it would take for everyone to really go, just doing a simple check in with yeah. people, especially right now connecting virtually and on Zoom and Skype and things. It's like, to everyone's gonna just, you know, a minute here, we'll go around like, how you doing? How are you feeling? You know, there's no right or wrong way. I mean, you know what I'm finding? One of the most vulnerable experiences or emotions people are having right now is joy and gratitude. Because it's like, I'm not supposed to feel joyful or grateful, like all this horrible <laughs> stuff is happening. Like, Seriously. right? It's, it's kind of like if anyone listening has ever, what I've been experiencing personally and emotionally in this whole experience over the last few months is it feels a lot like grief to me. And having lost my father and my mother and my sister and a number of other people really close to me over the last 15, 20 years of my life, I've experienced a lot of loss, a lot of grief. And one of the weird things about grief, from my experience, is yeah, it's painful and it's hard and it's awful in so many ways, but there's also a lot of love, a lot of joy, a lot of beauty in the grief and the connection with others. And I would find myself, especially like when my dad died when I was in my mid-20s, and that was the first real big loss in my life, I remember I would have these moments, not that long after he died, where someone would say something, whether we were talking about him or anything else, and I would start laughing, haha, And then I'd like stop myself and go, wait a minute, like my dad just died. Like it <laughs> he was supposed dis- to be laughing. <laughs> it was like, it felt like it was disrespectful to my father and to my mourning process. And it was like, wait a second. I don't think my dad would want me to be like somber and miserable and laughing is okay. But it was just, you know what I mean? And I think yeah. in some weird way now, it's like, I'm out in the backyard playing with my girls and we're joking around and I have these moments where I go, wow, like people are suffering and we're so lucky. And I feel this sense of gratitude, which is genuine. And then right after the gratitude, there's this sense of guilt that like, oh, I feel guilty because I'm feeling grateful and not, you know, but it's just like, again, so the emotional terrain of this experience while unique is also like in life in general, if you take it out of the pandemic and what we're dealing with, at work, we have all these weird rules about what emotions we're supposed to feel. Like, it's okay to feel a little bit of stress, a little bit of anger, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of excitement, but it's all like, there's like five or six emotions we're allowed to feel, and we're supposed to only feel them in a very limited way. Otherwise, we're supposed to just keep our head down and get to work, which to me is absolutely friggin' insane because it's like, wait, we want people to be engaged. We want people to be passionate. We want people to really care about what they're doing and at the same time, but don't feel all these other emotions or express them because they're inappropriate and they make people uncomfortable. It's like, well, which is it? Yeah, exactly. And you, we know this, you know this, you can't actually selectively mute emotions. If I say I'm not going to feel my anger or I'm not going to feel my sadness or I'm not going to feel my fear, guess what? You don't get to feel your joy and your gratitude and your excitement Mm -hmm. at the same level of depth. Like it's just they're holistic.
0: Pillar number two, you talk about focus on inclusion and belonging. You quoted Verna Myers. She's the VP of inclusion strategy at Netflix. And the quote, I've never heard this before. I love it. The quote says, diversity is being invited to the party, mm-hmm. inclusion is being asked to dance. Yeah. I love this. So talk about the differences between the two and why they're important.
1: Well, I mean, when you think about diversity, right, it's like we understand what that is, it's like you get different. Voices, different perspectives, different backgrounds at the table. I mean, we now know, like, there was a study that I cited in the book from McKinsey that racially diverse teams perform at a level of 33% more effective in terms of outcomes and results Mm -hmm. than non racially diverse teams and gender diverse teams. I think it's 21%, just in terms of empirical data looking at. So, and we all kind of know this. And this isn't, by the way, about quotas per se. This isn't about, oh, it's like, how do we fill the pipeline with the most diverse? candidates possible and then pick the best person for the job. That's going to get the most diverse voices around the table. But just that alone, so you get a diverse group. Okay, great. We have people that represent different backgrounds, different perspectives. That's going to make a more robust conversation. That's going to make us more effective. That's going to have us see things differently. But inclusion is about making sure that everybody feels included. So just getting invited to the dance is great. But is anybody asking you to dance? And this goes to if we're in positions of authority, if we're in positions of privilege, if we're in the more dominant groups, you know, I think of myself as white, straight, male, cisgendered, you know with a certain amount of affluence and education and different things Same that it's like right i mean again a few years ago if you'd said to me mike do you think that you're privileged i'd think well, like, well i'm not like a rockefeller Do you know what i mean like i wasn't born yeah, yeah. with a silver spoon in my mouth and i would immediately think to like single mom we didn't have a lot of money i had to sort of fight my way through things but it's like now that i think about it in a larger context and i've been more educated about this i realized oh my goodness i have an enormous amount of privilege yes. most What's- of which i take
0: for granted Talk about the trash can exercise. That's oh. an interesting way to describe privilege.
1: So privilege, So this high school teacher, I found this online when I was researching the book. So this high school teacher, here's how he teaches about privilege in his class. He puts a trash can in front of the class up uh, by the board, gives everybody a piece of paper, says, crumple up the paper. This can represents making it in our American culture here. I would like for you to, from your seat, throw your paper ball into the can. And if you make it in the can, <laughs> you've made it. Certainly and want to the, be in the front row. Exactly. And the kids <laughs> get all excited, but the kids in the back start going, well, hold on a second, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I'm way in the back of the class. I'm over in the far corner. Like, are you kidding? And the teacher's like, look, everyone has the land of opportunity. Everybody has a shot. And he stops the class and he says, look, notice this. Everyone has a shot, but we don't all have the same shot. Mm -hmm. And those of you sitting in the front, you have an easier shot. It's not a slam dunk. It's still, you got to figure out how am I going to make this eight foot or 10 foot shot? So you're probably focused more on that. Notice who's complaining the most is the people in the back because they have the hardest shot. And often if we're sitting in the front, our immediate thought isn't first like, oh, aren't I lucky? Oh, maybe I could help them out in the back. No, it's like, I got to make this shot. And so again, he closes the lesson by saying, basically, education is a privilege. It's what you do with it. How can you use your education and the privilege of this to help people maybe that don't have access to the same things you have access to? So again, the challenge with privilege is most of us hear privilege and it's become this hot button, really triggering word in our culture right now. But having privilege doesn't mean you also don't work hard. Having privilege doesn't mean you don't deserve the things that you're able to accomplish. What it does mean is we don't all start at the same place. And so inclusion is about if we're more in positions of power and authority, can we pay more attention to people who might be more marginalized and include them? However, where I ultimately get to in that chapter and that pillar and what I really learned in my research on this that I wasn't expecting was that where we ultimately want to get to is a place of belonging. That's really the goal. You can have a diverse team, which is fantastic. You can do a lot to really include people, but inclusion even by its nature is, there's still this notion that there's an in-group and an out-group, which there is in life and in work, there clearly is. But if we keep on that sort of dynamic, it's constantly like, well, I'm in power and you're not. Let me try to bring you into that power structure. Belonging is really the sense of, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, it's a fundamental human need. We all have a need to belong. And so when you were asking me questions earlier about like what makes a great team or what did I learn in sports, it's like, look, even on a sports team, it's like not everybody's the star player. However, can you create an environment where everyone feels like they're an important part of the team? And that's why like using sports as an example, why Steph Curry is my favorite athlete, maybe of all time, is because if you can get your best player to be your best teammate, then, oh my goodness, it gives everyone else permission. Oh, then we're all get to be part of the team. He's just yeah. one of the guys, which makes it like, hey, I know I'm not Steph Curry, but I'm part of this team and he's part of this team and we're all part of this team. And again, it's not about sports. You don't have to know much about basketball at work. If I'm the leader, if I'm the top performer, yeah. or if I'm working with that person, can we make it a sense of, yes, not everyone performs at the same level. And yes, there is a hierarchy of roles and you know responsibilities. But we're all equal members of this team, and everyone here belongs. That's what we really want to get to. I we're
0: talking about sports, so I'm a huge Portland Trailblazers fan, yeah. and these local news guys they they do so many behind the scenes like looks at the star players and even some of the lower level players. But I remember just reading some things about Damian Lillard, who's I'm a huge fan of, awesome. and you know some of the guys that would be traded or maybe be on the team for the first time. He'd offer to go pick them up. And maybe they're just a a basic role player, a rookie. You know, he'd help them and he'd be texting them about how we do things in in this organization and how can I help you. And this is a superstar player. He doesn't have to do any of that. But I think he realizes what it means for the culture and the team to be able to treat even people that probably won't even play. Totally. To be part of the team.
1: I love Damian Lillard. He's from Oakland. Yeah, yeah. Everyone here loves him. I mean, we're also partial to Steph Curry and to the Warriors, but he has so much respect here That's in great. the Bay Area and particularly in Oakland. And one of the great stories about Damian Lillard that I remember hearing was that he wasn't getting highly recruited out of college. So, in similar to Steph Curry, even though he was a really great player, he just for whatever reason wasn't big enough, didn't fit the part And wherever it was he went to school, did he go to like Weber State or some small school? Yeah,
0: Weber State in Utah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But they had committed to him and he committed to them. And then his stock started to rise as he moved through his senior year. And all of a sudden, these bigger schools were coming to him and saying, hey, you want to come play for us? And his response was no. Nope. You weren't interested. When I was interested in you, I made a commitment over here. They were interested. I'm going to fulfill that commitment. And that, might have even advised him personally, like, hey, dude, you should probably go to a bigger, <laughs> better school, man. Like, I'm just saying. He's play? made a lot of money. He made the right call. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you want to play in the NBA, I'm not sure Weber State is the way to go. That would be conventional wisdom. But he said, no, I'm going to do this. And there's something about that, the loyalty of that. And I know you know this as a Blazers fan, right? It's like, he made a commitment. I'm staying in Portland. And again, he doesn't have to do that. He gets paid plenty of money. He could probably go and get paid plenty of money elsewhere. But like, those kind of intangible things. And this is not to say that Damian Lillard or Steph Curry are perfect human beings, but those kind of things make a huge difference in terms of the culture of a team. And again, most teams aren't NBA teams, right? We're in the real world where we're interacting with doing things that are a lot less high profile. However, how you do things, there's no insignificant acts when you're a leader. And that's a leader like you're the manager, you're the boss, or a leader like you're a leader on the court or on the team because, you know, how you show up it's the same thing like as a parent right you with your kids with mine it's not so much what we say it's what we do it's how we show up they're paying attention all the time and we don't have to be perfect but if we can show up and operate with a sense of authenticity with a sense of really including people and having them belong it also goes to and i know we're getting close to being out of time here but like the third pillar in the book is about what i call embracing sweaty palm conversations that means being willing to talk about things that are uncomfortable being willing to address conflict sooner rather than later, being willing to give feedback and receive feedback when it's necessary, modeling those things, not to do them perfectly, because none of us ever do those things perfectly, but so that we make it more of the norm. This is how we roll. I'm more interested in our relationship and our success than I am in making sure that I'm always comfortable and that you're always comfortable.
0: On that pillar number three, I think it would be great to tell the story when you're on the plane talking to somebody he, I think he caught you watching CNN and he's like, fake news. And then he, I mean, you're like, you're watching Fox News. And you guys started disagreeing about everything and you're trying to probably solve all the world's problems. But oh it, at God. some point, you stopped him and you're like, so yeah. obviously we're not going to disagree. And then you just like <laughs> totally shifted. And I think you guys built a little relationship at the
1: end. Talk about that because it, that translates to the workplace. Right. So I'm sitting on a flight and I end up in this random sort of intense political argument with this guy (laughs) sitting next to me. I'm like, how the hell this happened? It was like out of a Seinfeld episode or something. Right. But what was funny about it is, you know, he's watching Fox on his little TV. I'm watching CNN on mine. And after like 30 minutes of this super intense back and forth about, I mean, we literally sounded like, yeah, pundits. And it was his mom, his, so he's (laughs) about in his mid fifties. His mom looks to be about 80 years old and I'm sitting on the aisle and the two of them are here and She's sort of chiming in from time to time, agreeing with him and then sort of also apologizing for him. Like he gets a little intense about these things, you know, but we're having this discussion and I'm more doing it kind of as like a experiment, like what's going to happen here. And I'm sort of feeling awkward because there's lots of people around us. And, and at one point, I mean, then he's like calling me a liberal snowflake and all these other, you know, wimp and sissy. And I finally, I put my hand up and I'm like, okay, man, stop. Like I'd had enough of the name calling and I'd been getting defensive I'm proud of myself that I wasn't sort of returning the favor on the name calling, but I just said, you know, I asked him, I said, do you have kids? And he looked at me going, yeah. And I said, yeah, I have two girls. And, you know, they were whenever, this was two, three years ago. So I was, you know, they're like 11 and and eight. And he said his kids were older. They were, you know, 30s, one was 30, the other three were in their 20s. And I said, well, you've been at the parenting game longer than me. I said, but sometimes as hard as I try, I worry that, you know, I'm screwing up or making mistakes or doing some things that are negatively impacting my daughters. I said, do you ever worry about that? Or did you, especially when they were younger? And he looked at me kind of weird, like, what are you talking about? But he said, well, yeah, sure. I mean, I think every parent feels that way. And I said, well, maybe with all these, you know, we're arguing passionately about these political things. And obviously we don't agree with each other. You know, some of these issues are so complex. I mean, I have really strong feelings about what I think is right and what we need to do, but I don't know. They're pretty overwhelming. Like, Sometimes I don't even know if I know exactly what's going (laughs) to, you know, and he's kind of again, looking at me like it was the total opposite of of what we were talking about, but I was being vulnerable and I was, you know, I wasn't doing it like a shtick. I was doing it for real. And he responded in a way to the, because the natural human response to vulnerability is empathy. And he kind of gave me the look of like, yeah, I feel like that too and it literally ended the conversation like i don't think he really knew what the hell to do with me no, at that point and he, he just you totally kind of, jolted him for sure maybe he well, well, and changed it, his approach
0: for interactions like that in the future
1: well and again it wasn't trying to play some like jedi mind trick it was just sort of like i was sick of the back and forth debating and and i kind of had, had enough of being called names but it was more and, and i wasn't i think again sweaty palm conversations sometimes like I, there's one I actually have been, was emailing back and forth with someone this morning, I need to have a sweaty palm conversation with someone this afternoon. And I'm not excited about it. I'm a little nervous about it. Part of why I sent the email, and I don't usually advocate engaging in those conversations by email, but I brought something up, an issue with someone who I've actually never really had a sweaty palm conversation with before, which is, by the way, often the hardest because it's like, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, it could go really well or they could absolutely hate me and it could be the end of the relationship but I put it out there and said, hey, I'm upset about this or concerned about this. I think we need to have a conversation. And that's a way for me to hold myself accountable to making sure I don't wimp out on actually having the conversation. Now it's out there. Now I can't run and hide from it. You know, if you have something you want to do or a commitment or a goal or something, you throw your hat over the wall because you got to climb over the darn wall to get your hat or else lose the hat, you know? Metaphorically, I've always believed that that's a really important aspect of our growth and development Is to throw our hat over the wall on something, make a commitment, make a bold statement, put something out there, and then figure out how the heck we're going to do it. Because otherwise, without those commitments, you know, I don't know how we get to the other side of things that are uncomfortable. I think about this sometimes now. You know, having written five books, I actually don't really like to write. It's not my favorite thing. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to like, whoa, it was me, but it's like. The only way I've written five books, even one, like if you told me 25 years ago, you're gonna write a book or you're gonna write five, you might as well said, you're gonna like walk on the moon. But the only reason is like, I'm committed to the work. I'm passionate about it. If I hadn't written this book or any of my books, I wouldn't be talking to you right now and everybody listening to us. So therefore I'm willing to be uncomfortable in service of what I'm passionate about. And therefore I've had to have deadlines and accountability and a lot of uncomfortable conversations and a lot of, right? But that forced me to be able to then do this and other things in my life that are important to me. When if you just ask the little whiny voice inside of me, I'd be like, yeah, no, I don't feel like it. Yeah, it does seem like in having
0: those sweaty pump conversations that you that's how you build trust and build relationships. And it really ties in with pillar number four, which is care about and challenge each other. And you wrote that sometimes our desire to be nice gets in the way of doing and saying what's needed to succeed. And I think if you're not willing to do that, then... It's hard to build trust and relationships with people. So what do you overall mean by that desire to be nice gets in the way?
1: Again, I think it's like we're so interested in being nice and being polite. And those aren't bad things. But what often happens is, again, let's say you and I work together. yeah, And let's say we're, we're cool. We're like friends. We get along. Things are good. But like I'm looking at you and I know what you're capable of. And it doesn't seem to me like you're living up to that. Or we made a commitment to each other, either directly or indirectly, about how we're going to operate or how we're going to show up or what we're going to do or whatever. And I see that, but I don't know how to say it. I'm like, oh, if I say that to Brandon, he's going to think I'm a jerk and he's going to get mad at me and might mess up our thing. And I don't want him to hold. And the other part of it, honestly, we make these unconscious agreements with each other all the time. I'm not going to call you on yours if you don't call me on mine. Because if I call you out, man, and I say, hey, yo, I expect more from you, or I, you know, I know what you're capable of. First of all, not only is that an uncomfortable sweaty palm conversation, but guess what? Not only might you get defensive about it, you might then in turn, not right in that moment, although possibly, but later on, do the same thing to me. Yeah. And nobody gets better from that. No, but again, without you know overdoing the basketball analogies and harping on my favorite team, but it's the Draymond Green on the Golden State Warriors phenomenon. Draymond Green gets right in everybody's face all the time and yells at them. And it's like, if you would look at it on the surface, you'd be like, that guy's a jerk. Pick us why Kevin Durant left, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe he went a little too far with KD. But, you know, in general, most of the time and the environment that they've created with the Warriors, that psychological safety, that commitment to excellence, it's like those guys know Draymond cares about them and he cares about winning. So when he gets up in someone's face, that's part of his role. That's part of his personality. My job is to challenge you to be the best you can possibly be. And we all need a Draymond Green on our team. We all want to have that kind of person in our life. We may not always love what they say. Sometimes it might ruffle our feathers or even piss us off. But you know what? I would much rather you get right in my face and call me out from a place of care, from a place of like, I want you to be the best you can be, than just be nice to me. Oh, good job, Mike. It's awesome, man. Great way to go. You know, that's not going to help me or us get better. One more thing, and then I'll let you go. What is the (laughs)
0: appreciation seed exercise? Leaving people with this would be a great end to the show. I think appreciation is obviously so important ingrained in your culture. It's to care about people. I think it's needed. So what is it?
1: Well, so if you really knew me exercise, it's like one of my go-tos. I love doing this with teams. And this one, basically, again, you can do it in a larger group, but you got to get people in smaller groups. It's perfect to do. And I've been doing it a lot, actually, recently, even virtually. The way it works, it's sort of the opposite of the If You Really Knew Me exercise in the sense of like one person goes first, but when it's their turn, and if I'm facilitating it, we've talked about appreciation and why it's important. And the difference, by the way, between recognition, which is about performance, and appreciation, which is really about people and their value. But we start with one person. So let's just say we'll pick, you know, Susie. Susie's going to be on the appreciation seat, quote unquote. And what that means is for the next minute or two minutes or whatever time we say, individually and in some random order, we're all just going to express appreciation for Susie and her job. And this is the hardest part of the exercise is to just listen to us and take it in. Just say, thanks. Just receive it like a gift. So hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Right. And, and what happens is it's awkward. It's vulnerable. Like we've been trained to do weird things like, Oh, you too, or you're great. Or, Oh no, stop it. I'm not, I coach. I like, no
0: please Just don't do either yeah, of those Say things.
1: thanks. Just listen, take it in. And so we do that. And then we move on to Joe and then we move on to Sammy and then we go around the whole group. So everyone has a turn on the appreciation seat. It's sort of like the opposite of the hot seat, right? And what's amazing is even though at first some people will roll their eyes or think it's a little corny or cheesy, and quite frankly, it is. But once we get past the initial awkwardness of it, it starts to go a little deeper. We start to actually lower the waterline, if you will, on the iceberg in this exercise. And it's amazing, Brandon, like, I've seen so many tears and connections and unbelievable, just the end of it, the debrief conversation is usually really fascinating. Almost everyone agrees that it's much harder and more uncomfortable to receive than to give. But what people realize is giving and expressing appreciation for people when they actually let you do it and they don't deflect it or immediately reciprocate is super nourishing. And it's like, oh, I actually got to give the gift and they received my gift, which makes it a virtuous cycle. And this exercise, by the way, I'll often do, you can do this with your team at any time. And by the way, unless you're literally doing it like three times a day, it's very difficult to overdo it. I've never met a human being in my life, Brandon. And, and I talk to a lot of people about appreciation who has said to me, honestly, you know what, Mike? <laughs> I'm just too appreciated. <laughs> yeah, right. right. No, it's just too much. I wish, no one ever. Yeah. No, no one's ever said that because no one feels that way, right? Oh, my, my coworkers, my boss, my clients, my kids, my spouse, dude, my friends, just, they appreciate me too much. It gets on my nerves. No. Most people feel underappreciated and some of us significantly underappreciated. So, if we take a little time to do it, this isn't about performance. This isn't about, hey, we won the thing. We got like, let's recognize performance when performance is deserving of recognition. Let's celebrate when we have a big win. But that's not what this is about. This is about valuing and caring about people. And right now, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of stress, in the midst of uncertainty, one of the best things we can do is let people know you're seen, you're valued, you're cared about not because of what you do, simply because of who you are.
0: My guest today has been Mike Robbins. He is the author of the new book, We're All In This Together. People, go get this book. It's phenomenal. It's really meaningful. Mike, I had a pleasure with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'll give you the last word. Anything you want to tell people as we part?
1: Well, just thanks for having me. And I think the thing I would say to everybody right now, especially, I mean, this is true always, but just let's all be as gentle and kind and compassionate with ourselves and with each other as we can right now, because everybody's doing the best they can.